0: How can we start a refurbishment revolution for electronics and electricals? Welcome to the Circular Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Wheatman, and I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative, and fair solutions are better for people, planet, and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's nowhere near enough to create a healthy, resilient and zero carbon world where we can all thrive. Many organisations are missing the game-changing potential of going circular. The disruptors in this space are using circular strategies to reimagine how to create value for all their stakeholders they're doing better with less. We'll hear from those inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make, and use everything. You'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to podcast updates, my Circular Insights newsletter, and check out my award-winning A Circular Economy Handbook. Welcome to episode 117, and thanks, as always, for tuning in. We're going to hear from James Rigg, Chief Executive Officer of Trojan Electronics in Wales. James has a wealth of expertise in value-adding circular solutions for electrical and electronics manufacturers and retailers. James has built on his experience across retail, and more recently, he's been leading growth across the Buy It Direct group and now he's focused on expanding Trojan Electronics' circular solutions to help retailers and manufacturers recover value and at the same time reduce e-waste. Trojan provides services to high-profile brands, and we'll hear about some examples. e-waste, the waste from end-of-life or unwanted electricals and electronics, is the world's fastest growing waste stream and is forecast to grow by over 30% this decade. The Trojan Electronics team provides electrical repair, refurbishment and resale services in several ways. Through their clients own marketplace stores, through direct integration into the clients e-commerce stores and through Amazon, eBay, TikTok, Woucher, and others. Trojan is a 20 million pound turnover business based in Swansea, South Wales, employing 150 staff in a purpose-built warehouse, which houses repairs and all its other services. And Trojan refurbishes over half a million items each year. Ahead of our conversation, James sent me some customer research, digging into people's attitudes to refurbish products with some very encouraging findings. We'll hear more about that in the conversation, but to give you a few of the standout figures now, over a third of the respondents had bought a refurbished or repaired electrical item in the previous 12 months, including smartphones, laptops or tablets, and household appliances. Only 1% of those people had had a bad experience with that purchase, and almost 80% said they'd buy refurbished in the future. And even though people knew they'd bought a refurbished item, 24% of customers couldn't tell the difference from the equivalent new product. The survey includes some market research, highlighting predictions for the growth of refurbished electronics. The market was valued at around $85 billion in 2021, and it's forecast to grow at 12% every year over the next decade. James is happy to share the research and I've included a link to the paper in the show notes. James also shared information from Trojans clients who are offering refurbished products alongside new versions, and the results are really exciting. However, at some other clients, attitudes are are slow to change, with people reluctant to make the transition from selling to selling refurbished products as well as new versions, and James explains some of the reasons behind this. Let's join the conversation with James Rigg of Trojan Electronics. James, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, and I'm really looking forward to finding out more about what Trojan Electronics does. I think there's some uh, fascinating aspects to what we're gonna talk about. But could you first give us a quick overview, for example, what kind of products you sell, um, what kind of customers you're selling to, and what services you provide
1: okay and um, so, so thank you by the way for inviting me to talk to you today i've been looking forward to this um so trojan so we're based in in swansea and we provide refurb and repair services to to most many manufacturers and, and, and retailers and it's all around electrical products and it's trying to extend the life of electrical products or so by repairing them um, refurbing them um, and then reselling them either on the manufacturer's own websites or selling them through marketplaces such as eBay. So therefore, there's three elements, I suppose, to, to Trojan. The the core one is the refurbishment uh, electrical items. But then we have a, a marketplace management um, team dealing with the reselling. But we also produce circuit boards. So we have a contract electrical manufacturing um, department also doing circuit boards for UK production. So mainly burger land companies and small, small producers.
0: Right. So quite a mix of of things then. And just to check on the eBay selling, is that through the eBay certified refurbished kind of channel that they've got?
1: It is. It's a really good question. Um, So it absolutely is through that channel. Some manufacturers don't want us to use a certified channel for their products because To be certified for the for the program for the product the manufacturer has to give you a letter that you give to ebay so it directly links them to the resale Um, and some manufacturers right now are a bit nervous around having that direct link between them and the ultimate consumer they want the middle person to to in essence to de-risk them from any risk Uh, but there is no risk (laughs) It's, it's, it's a fear that's that's irrational by manufacturers. So yes, we, we do use the certified um, program, but sometimes we we do it just as a normal refurb, not as the manufacturer-approved certified, depending on who we're working with.
0: Mm. So you'd kind of see that as part of the progression towards um, bringing refurbishment and remanufacture into your portfolio. If you're the if you're the brand um, yeah. that you might put your toe in the water by going through a company like Trojan and kind of having, having you as the middleman, if you like, but then when they get more confident and perhaps see the, um, the proof of the pudding in in the first 12 months or whatever, they might then feel more comfortable about um, being the brand behind the, the refurbished product.
1: Yeah, totally. So a great example there would be uh, somebody like Hotel Chocolat who do these beautiful velvetizers for making incredibly nice hot chocolates. Um, And we do the work for them, but they now list the products in their own stores alongside brand new. They're they're so proud of the product and so proud of their approach to to sustainability that they list the the showing is in store side by side. Um, So, yeah, what we see is a transition from don't tell people we're involved to, okay, we're really proud to be involved. Um, But that's a very slow process. Yeah, there is there are some retailers where in our contracts we explicitly can never mention their name on any product sale to say that we are in any way working on their behalf. So mm. the absolute fear um, and some other people who are much more embracing it. So people like Melita Coffee Machines, where again, we list it on their DTC website for them. Um, so they'll list it, we, we stock it um, and, and and ship it. So the I suppose the goal really is to get these products back onto the manufacturer's website alongside their new product. Mm. Yeah. Or into the store alongside new product in store. Yeah. So the, I suppose if you, if you're John Lewis, these products should be in their store, proud and loud um, on display um, as customer training, customer refurbished customer something. Um, and I think that's the ultimate goal to get to. We're, we're not there yet.
0: Yeah. And uh, when we were talking ahead of the po- podcast, I said, I'd noticed that with a few, I'd been looking for some new um, sound recording equipment. And I'd noticed that a few of the high-end brands actually had uh, what they called B-stock, which was customer returns, um, and then refurbished product alongside the new product. And I was, you know, pleasantly surprised to find that, but it does seem to be the, the kind of higher quality manufacturers that are happier to do that, um, which is what we want, isn't it? We want the high quality, reliable, repairable product. So how did how did um, Trojan get started and how did you come to be sitting here as the CEO okay
1: I am. so uh, Trojan has been around for for some time since um, 2002 but how did I get involved with Trojan so I work for a large group called the Direct group um, which has its own um, websites so or appliances direct and laptops direct to name two of them and the returns from our own sales were coming back to the business. It's going back maybe to 2011, 12. Um, and back then, the natural route for return product was to put it through auction or put it through Jobber. So I created a, a repair center within our own business to repair our own products. So we repaired um, appliances and laptops and mobile phones and so on. And as part of that, I was speaking with Trojan about potentially doing some work with Trojan, who specialise in doing exactly that, repair and refurb for manufacturers and retailers. Uh, but Trojan is a pretty amazing little firm. So it's about 150 people in Swansea. The, 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 the Swansea attitude towards getting stuff done, finding the best way to do something, uh, dealing with pretty dirty products that come in from consumers and making them nice and being proud of it again, they had that, that can-do attitude was, was really quite impressive. And they're working with people like Bosch and jewellate and some good brands. um so we took the decision to vertically integrate them into the group so as as a horizontal group and the vertical group now we have our own sites built this business that does refurb for third parties and then behind on the back of that, I then got so excited about this whole business that I could do reduce e waste, help manufacturers, yeah produce refurb and resell make things. Better and last longer. I, I then became the CEO of Trojan um, to to really scale that. I think Trojans are the leading edge of helping people reduce e waste. extending the life of product.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, when I started looking at what you were doing and, and um, you know discovering more, I was a amazed I hadn't already heard of it, and b just really impressed with the the kind of sheer range of of stuff that you're doing and the and the range of brands and retailers that you're working with and um james you've undertaken some research recently to under, to better understand attitudes towards refurbished electronics you know with um joe public if you like i hate, I hate using the word consumer <laughs> um, but people who were who were buying from the um, not from the refurbished website but just buying things online can you tell us a bit more about what you discovered from that research
1: yeah okay so this was um, this was much earlier this year when we were looking at the refurb products that we sell on eBay and we were trying to understand is there where, where, where's the consumer at is there is the consumer looking for this product is there is there, is there awareness and a want by the job Public to, to use your your term, to, to 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 have access to product, which is refurbished. Um, or is it literally a non starter is, is is the is the public not ready for this? Um so we surveyed people who'd bought electrical items from our own websites, from Appliance Direct and, and uh, Latos Direct. And we were pretty impressed with the um response. Well, the, the, we, we thought people may be slightly interested in refurb, but be very scared of it or not know what to do with refurb. Um, and we had some really impressive responses. So I think 71% of people say that they consider the impact of the product before buying it. So the awareness is really high before they buy the product. But also, it was 67% of people who also said they considered the, the brand and their approach to the environment and they want to buy something from a brand who's doing something different to try and improve the environment, reduce the waste, improve supply chains. Um, And also I think what was really interesting was um, 64% of people who responded had bought a repo electrical product in in the past. I think 37% have bought it in the last 12 months.
0: Um,
1: And I think that's really a result of the change in mindset towards towards mobile phones. So I'm using back by Envirophone and, and other other places. Um, I've, I've really normalized buying um, a, a refurb mobile phone. So what you'll see is is maybe mum and dad buy a brand new phone, but then the children they buy them refurb phones or students buy refurb because they can't afford to buy an iPhone 15, but they want to get an iPhone 12 that's refurb. So, so I think I think the mobile phone has changed people's behaviors and trust. So the, the people who bought refurb that would buy again is incredibly high. Yeah, I think only one percent were totally against ever buying Reverb again. Wow. So what we learned from this is, is that is that Joe Public is way ahead of manufacturers, way ahead of of governments and policies on on their approach to Reverb that they, they accept it and they want it. Um, and also what we found was it enables people to enter a brand that prior to that was was unaffordable, mm. like somebody that maybe is buying um I don't know, an, an, an unbranded. Um, hair strainer from from Amazon, so some unknown Chinese brands for for 50 pounds, can buy a Tresemme one for that sort of money in, in refurb. So they, they can trade across and buy something that prior to this wasn't available to them. So therefore, it's accessed for more people. So no, we're we're incredibly pleased with the um, with the survey and the excitement behind the consumers um the public.
0: Yeah, and I was certainly really interested to read it, and it you know it really. Um, made me feel much more optimistic about how quickly this is this is starting to move forward. So do you think these attitudes are specific to the UK or are you seeing similar attitudes in other countries?
1: Um, it's really interesting. I think most countries are unfortunately about the same. I think sometimes we it, it, we think that Germany will be ahead of us or some other country will be doing something different and c- consumer change um, will be different but but it's it's not. I think there's a couple of things a couple of initiatives that stand out. Um so in the UK the repair of faulty products so my dishwasher's is broken or something's broken in the house um around 32% of households repair product. So in France, it's now 32% because they've been doing this whole initiative around access to spares and enabling people to, to buy spares to repair themselves. But in the UK, it's 24%. So, right. so the UK is behind France on this. But, but Germany's 22. So the the, the reason why I said that both those two is everybody was around 22. France has done the whole right to repair, access to spares. The government is hugely behind people repairing at home and it's increased 32%, which is a 50% increase. In repaired products, so mm. so it's 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 substantial. But the other thing I think this is the you look at ages. So you look at the, the age group of people. People aged fifty-five plus, uh, more than half of them repair their own products. People aged around uh, eighteen to twenty-four, only only thirty-seven percent repair product. So even though it's a younger generation that is driving change in sustainability, the older people still do the repairs, and the younger people aren't quite yet doing doing the repairs.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and one of the biggest barriers to to repair is 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 too expensive.
0: Mm. The, the
1: the cost of the spares is disproportionate. Yeah, a new product maybe two hundred fifty pounds, and the and a new mortar maybe hundred pounds. It, it's it, it becomes disproportionate, and that's the issue why people are not repairing more.
0: Yeah, and you know, with my cynical um, hat on, and I've, I've talked about this example lots of times on the podcast. Because even years later, I'm still annoyed about it. But, you know, the washing machine where I could hear that the bearing was starting to wear out because we have dogs. So there's lots of, you know, grit and, and, and dirt going through the washing machine and I could hear the bearing starting. So I thought I'd get on top of it and get it replaced now, only to find that this washing machine, you know, less than three years old. You couldn't buy just the bearing. The smallest part you could buy was the entire drum unit. And the cost of that was nearly 80% of the cost of a of a similar washing machine. But, you know, what the manufacturer doesn't know is I was so annoyed that I'll tell everybody, you know, that it, it was an AEG washing machine. I'll never be buying that brand again and so on. So this kind of, you know, um, these knock on effects from the customer stories, I think, are what brands don't take account of because, you know, and you wonder whether... Um, was that just some wrong-headed decision that, you know, we'll get so few of these bearings going that we won't bother to sell them. We'll just do the drum unit for the odd thing where, you know, something catastrophic has failed in warranty, say. Or are they doing that as a cynical attempt to, you know, persuade you to buy the latest model instead? And that's the bit that kind of, you know, rankles with people. Just just coming back to those attitudes, though, and just to kind of clarify, when you're saying um, that... Different age groups have different attitudes to repair. Is this about getting things repaired or doing the repair yourself or, or both?
1: So it, it, it's actually both. The, the survey uh, was about people repairing themselves. Mm, okay. um, and so people repairing at home and buying spare parts. But I think the same... Um, barrier to price is on doing itself or by sending it away for someone to do it for you. Mm. Yeah, the the, the price is, is is disproportionate. It's interesting you mentioned um, AEG then um, as the manufacturer for the for the appliance because we are working with AEG Electrolux Group at the moment. We've uh, as as a trial we're processing around four hundred of their appliances to understand if we can make it viable to to reverb and, and relist them on the, on their behalf. So maybe they heard your voice. Maybe maybe you, you created some change within them.
0: Well, I think the, the, the credit for the, for the change uh, is much more likely to be um, somebody um, I've known for a few years, Barry Waterlove, um who did one of the first circular economy MBAs at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And uh, he's done a section in 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 the book about his circular economy game for getting started, and he's now head of circular economy at Electrolux, and has been head of design in Electrolux for um, over in the states for a few years. So I'm suspecting that he's he's the driver behind the um, the change in attitude, and it'd be really interesting to see what they do next. So talking about different brands and retailers, how do you think? Things are starting to to change you know you've mentioned that the, the that some brands are reluctant to be out there on the eBay refurbish thing, but are you starting to see changing attitudes generally
1: um, We are starting to see changing attitudes um, but it's incredibly slow uh, and the people who want to do the change often don't have the authority to drive the change that they want to see implemented there's a there's a traditional sales driven commercial structure that wants to sell a new product and not have the hassle to deal with ongoing products after the initial sale so people like so people like Melita, and uh, the bean to cup people like flame the um the fireplaces yeah they've been quite quick to to adopt a, a repair and and resell um and they're quite proud to do so some of the other retailers um are 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 much slower um but we are working with them. So B&Q, are. they've started by doing a trial on Toolstation on doing small refurb themselves, and they're hoping to expand that out to do more refurb um, of their products, and we're, and we're working with them on a, on a on a little trial, or we're going to work a trial next year with them to see if we can recover some of their own appliances that go with their kitchen. So we're starting to see changes in some of the large retailers, um, but, but it, it's incredibly slow. I think that's one of, the, one of the things that I've taken from this is it's a very slow to change the mindset of people.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I've worked at a few big corporates, so I know how it, it's like to, trying to turn a super tanker, isn't it? Um, and there are just so many people to, to convince and everybody's comfortable doing what they already do. Um, and I guess people, you know, people are also waiting to see who's going to be the first mover. Nobody wants to kind of be first out of the gate, which isn't, you know, you can kind of understand that. But when you look at the, the the sort of crises that we're facing, being a leader on things like this could be a real vote winner from the point of view of attracting customers to you. As you said from your research, people are really keen on doing this and, and people want to make better choices with the things that they're buying. So I think, you know, lots of brands are missing a trick. And are are you seeing any particular barriers inside companies? You know, obviously there's the reluctance to change and that, you know, it's easier just to keep selling new stuff, but is there anything else that you're you're picking up?
1: Yeah, so there's a huge fear of what will happen to their sales. So the biggest fear that virtually all the retailers have, manufacturers have, is that if they sell refurbished product, If a new product is, say, £99 and the refurb is, say, £59, all consumers will buy the £59 product, not the £99, and all of a sudden they've lost their income by by 40%. So that's that's their biggest fear, which is unfounded, which I'll talk about in a second. Mm. Um, And the next fear they have is brand damage. So they represent this beautiful brand of wonderful things, and all of a sudden there's something slightly grotty going out there with their name on it, and that will damage their brand, which is unfounded. And, and the third part of it is the ongoing risk of something going faulty down the line because it's not straight from the factory, and their fear of that. Um, and what we see in in all of this is that customers absolutely don't trade down. Mm. Yeah, people who buy new buy new. People trade across, trade up. So the substitution from new is not the issue. They're actually getting incremental customers who come into their brand who wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, who would have bought? Ongoing... Who would have
0: bought a, a you know a lower quality brand? So you kind of, exactly. and this is, you know, in, in the first examples I came across of remanufacturing with Caterpillar and, and Cummins and companies like that and JCB that have got their remanufactured. You know, there's even a brand Cat Reman um, and it's the most profitable part of their businesses and it brings in customers who aspire to have that top brand who know it's going to be super reliable and do all the stuff that they need and last a long time, but they can't justify the cost of a new one so it, it kind of you know brings you into that market and introduces you to a whole new demographic of customers
1: absolutely absolutely and, and also it is it, a new customer and also customers who who recognize that you're making a difference and that you're doing something to make a difference so it's not just price led it's absolutely mm. led on on the on the credentials
0: yeah and i think even for you know It even embellishes the quality of the new product, doesn't it? Because people know that if the brand's going to stand behind remanufactured product or refurbished product, then the new stuff must be super high quality in the the first place. So whichever choice you make, it's kind of, you know, making you feel more confident about choosing to buy from that brand. So what about, you you know, you talked about the unfounded um, or that, you know, the the false false truths around the other barriers. Do you want to, to kind of um, give us some examples of those?
1: I think the the main false truths are um, this whole idea of that customers will trade down. The, mm. the, the fear is loss of income. Um, and so when you look at brands like, um, I don't know, Smeg for cook, Smeg Cookers or something, Smeg, Smeg Fridges, again, that, that price point is is very high and very desirable. And the customers who buy that product new still buy the product new. And we know that because we've listed them side by side. So we've listed new products alongside refurbished on appliances direct. And what we see is there's no detriment to the sales of new products. There's zero detriment to new product sales. Hmm. But there's increased sales of, of refurbished. So there, there's, there's nothing out there that suggests that it's going to steal from from new. Um, but there's a recurring theme in our conversation here as we're talking, which is it's the good brands that we are able to refurb and resell. And the very um low value brands um that are designed not to be repairable so so in here there's an issue which i think straight away is is um quality is slightly more expensive but it's repairable and will last much longer whereas the the fast take you know the 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 low-end product and even in washing machines like the 199 washing machines and Mm. 149 tumble dryers um two or three maybe four years they're going to have problems they're not going to not going to last and they're not, they, and they probably won't have the spares or be viable to repair. And in that price point, people may substitute in the brand. So actually, I think some of the big manufacturers of very low price products actually will struggle to move to a a, a refurb and repair sustainable model. Uh, but I think ultimately, if the second time around sales from premium product is then being substituted from what the person who would have bought. a a very cheap product actually we will create a natural life where people move to premium as the price drops in years two three four five and and so on Mm. and then these small people who are these these cheap um, brands that are not designed to be repaired not designed to be long-lasting will naturally lose customers so that that, i think that's where we'll see the 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 change
0: yeah yeah i mean it'd be great if that happened wouldn't it that you know um because we can guess that in the in the supply chains of those manufacturers that's where it's you know unregulated it's not closed loop manufacturing processes so there's all sorts of chemicals and um you know pollution going out into the into the system and i guess the the tricky bit um and this um conversations happening particularly around fashion is what about the jobs that they're providing even though they might be repetitive low-paid exploitative jobs you know how do we how do we get over that and that's not something for us to kind of answer today but that's one of the sort of dilemmas around the transition is how do we replace that you know the the income that those people are earning now with something that's that's you know more a more meaningful form of work um but yeah let's really actually
1: But just if you you think so, one one of my key drivers is is to double. If you double the life of something, you halve the e-waste. So yeah, something lasts twice as long. Mobile phones used to last about two point four years. Now they last about two point six years. Yeah, they they should last four years or five years. So if you double the life, you halve the e-waste, which is one of the key things that I really want to to see happen. But you're absolutely right. If you double the life, you halve the e-waste. You have the production volume, you have the jobs, and you're absolutely mm. right actually this whole it's 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 it, it's not balanced in a fair way is it, it, it it's a, a good lever creates a really bad lever over here somewhere that mm. uh, 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 um yeah that's that's a good
0: point. i mean I guess you know it's in other countries where you know where the resale and the refurbishment and the remanufacturing is happening, it's creating meaningful jobs, isn't it but there it's unlikely that you're going to send something back to um, Asia and, you know, um, Eastern Europe to be refurbished because of the logistics costs and footprint. But, yeah, I think yeah. it's it's really encouraging that, um, you know, attitudes are starting to change and that there are such clear patterns of people trading across and people seeing that a brand that sells refurbished stuff, you know, that's kind of a badge of higher quality products to begin with. So it gives you more... Um, reassurance that you're making good choice whether you're buying new or buying refurbished so um you know are there, are there other ways that brands could capture more value by making higher quality things you know what what else have you have you looked at in this this kind of business model space
1: so we've looked a lot into rental mm-hmm. um we think rental is is a, is a, is a superb model because um, the product is always managed for all of his life so someone has an interest in delivering a product bringing it back um making it fit for purpose again and then re-delivering it again and and so on so so rental is something that i've looked at quite a bit and and investigated setting up some rental for some appliances um the 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 concerns with rental i think people have is the huge amounts of cash required up front to fund the products for the life of the rental It's, it's substantial cash it's probably the equivalent to one year's income that they would have achieved by selling the product up front um, so I think rental has huge benefits um, and it moved, but it moves the money for two years, it pushes the cash out for two years and the question is, is how do you fund that, that chain in cash
0: it's one of the key challenges, isn't it, of the circular economy is how do you manage the different cash flow? And um, there are um, certain banks like ING that are starting to recognise this and, and offer services for it. Um, I guess companies can start by just doing um, offering rental on one particular product line or into one particular market. And then there are organisations and companies like River Simple, um, which is trying to make a, a hydrogen small car. Um, and getting closer and closer to the launch date. And what they're trying to do is create a complete circular supply chain. So they won't be buying parts from their suppliers. They'll be leasing those parts from the suppliers. And when the car comes back to River Simple at the end of its um, lifetime, those parts will go back to the suppliers for them to remanufacture or harvest the materials or whatever. But obviously that's, you know, incredibly complicated to try and set up from scratch. And it's, you know, it's taking them years to do. But it's a it's, you know, it's a very interesting model. So um, just going back to the the meaningful jobs from repair and refurbishment and so on. That's my perception: is that people are going to feel attracted to those kind of jobs because you get a buzz from from doing the right thing. Is that is that how it's panning out, or are you seeing different patterns?
1: Okay, so un, un, unfortunately, that's not how it's panning out. Right. Um, okay. So it's 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 really it's really strange, actually, the, the difference between people totally buying to buy into people totally get buying um and and the benefits that come with come with refurb. But yet, when we try to recruit for people for a, a career in doing refurbishment and repair and stuff, in finding the best way to put something back out there into the, um, into the public, what we're finding is there there is no appetite for people to do jobs in refurb. And I think one of the main reasons behind that is, and one of your um, one of your interviewees you had a few weeks ago. Um, Mention the same thing, which is there is no accreditation for refurbishment there's no accreditation for doing something sustainable with product with electrical product there there's, there's very few if any I can't find any that may be out there colleges or or universities specializing in doing e waste reduction engineering mm. in e waste uh, apprenticeships in being an engineer, so I think there's a huge missing piece there in 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 education about not creating the people who will, who will need to do the, the repair and refurbishment of electronics. So that's what I'd like to see. is is a, a recognised standard and accreditation for uh, people who are doing repair. And then we can then put up on apprenticeship schemes, we can train them, we can give them careers from that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, and just going back to the person that you heard on the po- podcast, um, I think that would have been Fiona Deer talking about the Restart project. And that's one of their projects is to try and create qualification around repair. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk to people about Joe Public doing repairs, um, and there's been a few podcast guests that have talked about this, um, including uh, Sandra Goldmark in, in America, that people get a real buzz out of repairing their own stuff or even getting their own stuff repaired. And so surely that same kind of buzz has got to translate across doing that for a living but it's just you know how do you communicate that and how do as you say how can people see it as a career path where they can get qualified and you know and have something have a transferable skill that's recognized as you know so you can do this and that means you know you're employable in these kind of industries so I think you know that's that's something that policymakers could definitely um, help support.
1: I totally agree and um, policymakers could also help by, by supporting things like no VAT on spares. So to, to, mm. to drive people to do more repair at home, yeah, remove the VAT, that's 20% off, by mandating that parts are interchangeable. So if you have a broken product, you can use those the parts in there to fix another product that's broken. Uh, so iPhone actively prevent that, uh, Apple prevent that as an example. Mm. Yeah, but it, they shouldn't be able to. It should be designed to be interchangeable. There should be less glue on products. So if you try and un- open something that's small to fix it, you open it, and the glue then rips apart the inside. So I remove the glue, then I can get my screwdriver and tinker and, and fix something. So there's some the government has several things to play here, and absolutely make parts accessible, usable, yeah, and interchangeable and mm. no VAT.
0: Yeah, and in Sweden, I think they were even allowing people to claim back um, the cost of repairs on their income tax. So you could kind of save income tax. If if you'd spent a couple of hundred quid on repairing stuff over the years, you could claim that back in in your uh, tax return. So there's all sorts of little tweaks. Yeah,
1: Yeah, because ultimately it it ends up going to some sort of landfill anyway, and the government has to pay for that in some way anyway. So bringing forward the cost and making it last longer, actually, is better value for money, I think, over the term of a product, rather Mm. straight to landfill, which is the alternative.
0: Yeah. Um, and costs cost society more, more money as well, doesn't it, the, the whole landfill Probably. thing. So, um, you know, when you're talking to people about the circular economy and about refurbishment and repair and so on, if somebody's interested in doing that with their business or, you know, getting started on something, what's the number one tip that you share with them?
1: I think the main tip to share would be that it's it's a very slow process. I think to go in there and to be prepared to, to take time, a year, two years, to, to work with people and change their minds and help them to develop their own refurb strategies. I, I, there's one thing that has surprised me over the last um, what, 18, 19 months of being really focused on trying to, to bring this to manufacturers' attention is the initial response is always, it's great, let's do this. But then it's very slow. So I suppose on the back of that, if you're if you're trying to create a business, you need some investors, you need to do a business plan. Um, it's to be very pragmatic and realistic about the business plan. Yeah, don't expect to have income coming in very soon. You'll have to fund this through for 18 months to two years before you may start to see an income. So I think that's a key thing. It's not a quick win. There's, 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 there's competing factors within manufacturing retailers that where the ESG teams absolutely want to do the refurb, the operations people don't necessarily want the hassle of moving the product around, and the commercial people and marketing people are petrified of change. So <laughs> so I think you just have to be eyes wide open. It's slow, yeah, but but stick with it. You can make a, a difference.
0: Mm, yeah, and you definitely need patient, patient capital in there, not people looking for ret- big returns in the next quarter. So Absolutely. is there is there a, you know, do you have a favourite circular economy example? Is there somebody that you'd want to give a shout out to um, as a pioneer in, in circular products or repair or some other circular initiative?
1: Yeah, okay. So um, there's a lot of people to to, to, to talk about in, 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 on, on that, and on the Alan MacArthur Foundation to, to do some great stuff. Um, but I think there's, there's some very simple things that are happening that I really like. So uh, there's, a, there's a product called Loop, so that uh, made by TerraCycle. Mm. Uh, and, and the whole premise behind that is that the the packaging is so substantial that you buy a product with great packaging. And then when you go back to the store to buy it again, you drop off the packaging, the, the product packaging. Even though it's dirty, you drop it off, buy a new one, um, and that product then goes back to be rebuilt and, and comes out again. And, and I think it's got lots of operational problems right now, but I think conceptually, the idea of using it and returning it, a bit like bottles of pop in the 80s, where you take it back and get your 20p and get another bottle of pop. I think they, they admit probably put a 2p back then. and probably being generous on <laughs> what, what you got. I think that concept of the consumer, of the public, taking it back and getting a new one will start to make change in all of our behaviours. So that's the first one. And the other one that I really like is I met a lady called Emma, Emma from the Library of Things, which is a community-based lending business it is a business but it's but it's managed by the community and it's and the products are stored locally in a library or some other public space and and you go there and you rent for the day a drill or you rent for um for a week some an iron or whatever you want to rent and it's and it's designed to make it accessible and the community manages it um as a business it is a business but it's community-based rather than being big hire shops so i think those two concepts of you use it and then you take it back before you buy the next one or you go and borrow it from the place in the community that we all worked together to put things in and share the cost. I think those two concepts will will make a massive change to behaviours.
0: Mm, yeah, so it's kind of all around reuse and pooled resources, isn't it? And is that the library of things in London that you're thinking of? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. So I'll um. I'll... I think they
1: I think they have a great they have a great concept and and I've met the founders and I thought they were really exciting. I think operationally, it may be tough to scale, tough to put into remote regions. I think they have some, some, it's going to have some scale things to overcome. But conceptually, uh, I really like their, their approach to doing this.
0: Mm, yeah, I think libraries of things are a really interesting concept. We've done a couple of interviews um, quite a while ago and uh, noticed um, in the last month or so that Ethical Consumer Magazine have put together a directory of libraries of things in, in the UK. Um, so you can now go and go and see the, the you know go and go and find one near you, and um, I was doing a talk in Ireland a couple of weeks and they they've got twenty different libraries of things around um, around Ireland. Mm-hmm. So it's you know that's that sort of movement starting to pick up as well, and yeah, TerraCycle and Loop. We've interviewed Tom Zaki before on the podcast though. That's a, you know really exciting innovation, and um, it'd be good to see how that kind of scales out in in different countries.
1: Part of the argument around the loop thing is it's some people argue it's not. that's not a sustainable solution. It's just packaging. The product inside needs to be more sustainable. And I think actually both these things happen hand in hand. Mm. If, 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 the, if the packaging is more robust, then that's one massive chunk of plastic that's not going to go floating around in, in the sea. And you improve the inside on the supply chain and remove all the ingredients that are not helpful or nice. But but I think it is it's a key part of the concept of being circular mm. is to take back your thing you've used.
0: Yeah. And one of one of the concepts was, you know, packaging with additional functionality. And Tom was talking about the double twin world ice cream containers, haagen ice cream that kept the ice cream cooler for longer. And I was kind of thinking, well, I can see why you might need that in America where it's warmer. But, you know, would people are people interested in that here? And he was then explaining that it means that um, you can sit with the tub of ice cream in your hand on the sofa. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK, now I'm definitely in a different a different world of, of um, you know, food and ice cream, because that would never have occurred to me to sit with <laughs> a whole a whole tub of ice cream in front of you. But well, anyway, I was interested
1: <laughs> on that, by the way. So. Uh, McDonald's also did a wonderful uh, cup that he used many times. Um, so you could buy a coffee for whatever two pound ninety nine, mm. uh, or you could you could buy a coffee in this cup that would last you forever for maybe four ninety nine. The idea was that you bought this lovely cup, uh, uh, travel cup, and then you take it back and refill it. This is the, the this is the approach. But in reality, people bought the coffee for four ninety nine, kept the cup at home, went back and bought another coffee for four ninety nine took the cup to work because actually it was a oh, very right. cheap way to get a cup that would have <laughs> yeah. been probably 10-15 pounds to buy from retailers so and, and that double skin hog and dust thing sounds brilliant but again I can, I can imagine that wouldn't go back it would mm. end up being in various parts of the house
0: yeah 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 yeah. although I'm well anyway <laughs> I won't go there um but yeah the the um but it is it is interesting this kind of concept of packaging that's not just designed to be cheap and disposable that it's designed to you know add extra things or you know improve your experience of the of the product um so yeah and james if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help create create a better world what would that be
1: okay so that that, that, that's a substantial wand isn't it (laughs) it's a substantial wand um and it's hard to pick something in the sense of it's a world of poverty and and hardship and, and sickness and and global warming and a lot of anger and, and wars and um, recently more wars Yeah, where do you pick something in, in there and and i think there's one thing that I, I would like to see change if i could do something to make a difference and um, try to fix some of these huge global problems maybe it's too simplistic but i think access to honest and fact-based and balanced information from an unbiased press and all unbiased data sources uh would take away some of the mistakes and the misunderstandings and the causes of anger that that people experience in different communities and in different countries around the world i think it's very dangerous that that even the the mainstream press is biased towards its audience and gives them confirmation bias around the mm-hmm. things they want to tell them and it just stokes anger it stokes division and in a world of terrible problems everyone should have the same fact-based information that they're making judgments on yeah, they can make their own judgments, but it should be honest and fact-based. So if I could change one thing, it would, I think it would be to give everybody access to independent, free, unbiased, totally unbiased information to make decisions on. Take away the anger.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I like that one. Yeah. And and that might even include lots more positive news, mightn't it? Rather than What's it just being means? all kind of, you know, anger and despair inducing stuff that we that we tend to mm-hmm. see today. Um, So, great. So, finally, James, how can people find out more and get in touch with you um, and Trojan Electronics?
1: Okay. Um, So, you can find us in in a couple of places. Uh, We have a website, so Um, trojan.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn, so James Regan and Fire Meal, I'll talk to to people. Um, And we're also uh, creating a a, a new membership called CLEAR, uh, the the Circle of Leadership Against um, E-Waste. Uh, and our website for that is uk, uh, where we're going to work with manufacturers to represent them and be their voice to try and make change.
0: Mm, that sounds amazing. So we'll put all those links in the show notes as usual. And James, thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm super impressed by your passion and creativity in finding ways to help make electricals and electronics, um, you know, stay in the system for an, an awful lot longer. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you, as always, for lending us your ears for another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. And of course, a massive thanks to our very knowledgeable guest this week, James Rigg of Trojan Electronics. Thanks also to Rick Hollister and Holly Gregory for making this episode possible. You can find out more about James Rigg and Trojan Electronics, follow them on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circular economy podcast.com. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops, and advice, plus circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman. On LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage? You could also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and sustainable business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies, or for a market sector, or specific countries. Check out the Interactive Podcast Index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.